episode of the Pirates of the Airways, the podcast that talks to some of the people behind the land-based pirate radio stations of the 1970s and 80s. This episode finds me talking to Tony Randall. He started his journey listening to Radio Caroline and stayed involved right up to the 2000s. We hear about a few brushes with the authorities and a saboteur along the way, so let's have a listen to Tony's story. Hello and welcome to the Pirates of the Airways podcast. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking to Tony Randall. Uh, good evening, Tony. We're recording this in the evening. Good evening, Tony. And good evening to you, Mark. The first thing I ask, and the same thing I ask everybody who comes onto this podcast, is when did you first become aware of pirate radio as opposed to just listening to the radio? Um, 1963, with the advent of Caroline, I suppose. 64, sorry. I'm losing a year. Yes. Right. Okay. It, it, as I said many times before as well, it seems to be everybody's entry drug is Radio Caroline, whether it's Radio Caroline post-73 or Radio Caroline, you know, post-64. Although, although saying that, I did actually hear Radio Veronica, thanks to my brother before this, but I didn't realise it was a pirate. And then when, when did you um, start moving into the actual pirate radio world where you were thinking, I mean, were you a listener before you were involved in um, a, a station or being on a station? Oh, yes, very much so. Um, uh, I listened to the usual, the Caroline, the Atlantas, um, uh, and then I got into hobby radio, shall we say, with uh, talking talking to the trawlers when I lived in Brighton. Um, used to play them the occasional record, but it wasn't, it wasn't a music station as such. It was just a, a, a hobby. I first got into... The first music station I got into was Radio Jackie after replying to um, their their appeals for staff. First of all, whereabouts were you living? And secondly, at what sort of time was this? I was living in Alpington, and that would be in the very early 70s, probably 72-ish. And were you just um, site staff for Jackie, or were you on the air? How was that working? Oh, yes, I, I was cannon fodder. Yes, I was site staff. <laughs> um <clears throat> Under the direction of Nick Catford, I did learn a hell of a lot about pirate radio. Um, I turned up one day at uh, Nunhead Cemetery, uh, as I was told to, and uh, sat there and sat there. No one turned up, and I was a bit, a bit upset because no one was there. Then I saw this this car, this uh, Corsair, turn up, and uh, had a Radio Jackie sticker in the back. So I started to follow it, but. He saw me following him, obviously, so he went faster, so I went faster. In the end, we were having a race around the streets. Anyway, I caught him up, and then he jumped out of the car, and he said, what the, do you want? He obviously thought I was a post office man or a copper or something, and uh, I said, I'm looking for the chap I'm supposed to see at Nunhead Cemetery. Oh, oh, all right. Anyway, it turned out to be Brian Anthony, and he was the first person I ever met on Radio Jackie. And what? how long and what? did you do with Jackie? I was there every week at 10 o'clock waiting for the start off. Um, sometimes we get raided and we go somewhere else. Um, 
I had quite a quick motor car at the time, so it was handy to get stuff about. Um, I got arrested once on Jackie, taken to a police station. Um, I got away with a radio transmitter under Eric Goss's nose uh, once. And that was at um, a railway station. What was the name of the railway station? Can't think of it. It will come to me anyway. Uh, but where I got arrested was quite funny. Uh, we'd done a big Christmas broadcast. And the following week, we'd, we'd use the same address. And uh, I was sitting there reading my paper outside the, outside the location. Everything was going sweet, nice. And then suddenly all these police vans turn up. And I thought, oh, no. So I buried my head under the newspaper, making that was absolutely nothing to do with this pirate radio station until a young man called John Wright, who you may have heard of, quite a few of your listeners will, will know of him, uh, and he came round the corner with this big multi-band Koyo radio, all the aerials sticking up for no apparent reason, and started banging on my window, saying, it's gone off, Tony, it's gone off. And I'm trying to ignore him, and obviously the, the police saw what was going on, and so he walked over to me and said, uh, are you something to do with this? I said, no. He said, why is he telling you it's gone off then? Anyway, at the death, they wanted me to go down to the police station. I said, well, I'll follow you. No, 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 no. We're going to drive your car down there. I said, oh, so those who got captured went down to the police station and uh, we all got locked up in a cell. No, we didn't. We got stuck in the charge room and the sergeant said, right, who wants to go first? So we all sat there dumb. Who was the driver of the car? I was. So he said, you're right, you're first. This goes on a bit, but it's quite good. Um, anyway, stuck me in a cell for about, I don't know, half an hour or so. And then these two blokes walked in and said, ah, yes, yeah, we, we know you, don't we? I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I don't even know where I am, really. I said, <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, I know your face. I know your face. I said, okay, fine. And the animal's going on, uh, oh, what are you doing here? I said, well, to be honest, I said, I was tracking down this pirate radio station. And I come across it, I said, and I was just about to phone the authorities when all you guys turned up. And I thought, oh, that's great. That'll save me a phone call. Save me looking for a phone box. He said, well, how did you find it? I said, well, I don't want to get technical. I said, but if you turn a radio around, uh, the signal goes up and the signal goes down. He said, yes, then what happens? I said, well, I take three bearings on a map. And I said, um, I, I make some marks on the map. And I said, where, where the marks uh, join up is where the station is. Oh, I see, he said. Then the other guy came bursting. He said, I'm sorry about that. He said, we did something for uh, Mr. Blackburn a little while ago. And he said, you do look vaguely familiar to him. I said, all right. So uh, that was that bit over. Um, and then the other chap said, oh, I hear you've been turning radios around, looking for radio stations. I said, yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, he said, well, how did you find it? So I told him again. He said, right, if we go down to your car now, we'll find a map with all these lines all over it, will we? I said, no, no, no. He said, ah, oh, we've got you. I said, no, you haven't. I said, you'll find some very small pencil marks. I said, maps are expensive. I said, I can't keep buying maps every week. So, all oh, right. Okay, he said, fair enough. So that seemed to satisfy them. Um, in the meantime, what I didn't realise was the police had been going through my car. Now, on the back of my car, there was a Radio Jackie sticker. On the sun visor, there was a list of post office vehicle numbers to look out for. And there was also a program tape, which I think, I don't know if it was Stuart Vaughan's or Nick Catford, but one of the program tapes were in my cassette machine for some reason. I think I was taking it back to Nick's later. Uh, they never found any of it. I, I was absolutely gobsmacked. They'd never, they'd, I just didn't find it. Uh, 
Anyway, about half an hour later, I suppose, uh, the other three were still in the charge room and the, uh, the station sergeant came down. I'm not going to swear. I'm not going to say exactly what he said to me. He said, I know you jumped that electricity box in that house. We know what you were doing. Now, go away and do it somewhere else. And that was that was my afternoon in the Nick. <laughs> and where, whereabouts was that? Where was that raid? Uh, that was Louvain Road. That was um, uh, not near Streatham. It was near Streatham anyway, not far away. I, I, I think... I think Nick told me about some of the Christmas broadcasts, which seemed to just go on until. No, that was a week. That was a week after Christmas. Um, the, the the Christmas one before was really good. We used to use. Um, we did a big high power job there. It was a couple of eight one threes in the PA, and uh, the mods, the modulation, you could actually hear rattling from the mod transformer. It was great. Um, I always remember Dave Owen playing Golden Earring. And, and the transformer rattling like a good one. That, that was a really good weekend. Really enjoyed that. Living like a, living, living like a hippie, you know, it's really good. <laughs> yeah, I, I think those days on Jackie must have been fantastic because they were a very well-organised station, a lot of listeners and, and really good people involved as well. How, lo- how long were you with Jackie for? Oh, uh, about uh, two and a half, three years. Uh, and then we, we ventured off on our own with um, Sun Radio, which was on VHF. 92.8. Um, that was a good station. That was originally run by Bob Dunn, who you probably know of. Um, he got bored with it. He said, do you want a radio station? I said, yeah, okay. So I took the running of the station over. Uh, yeah, it was good. We were the, we're the only pirate, as far as I know, who got a listing in Time Out magazine, um, mainly for the... For the lunacy, the camp lunacy that I used to do. It got if, if you're gay, listen to this station, basically. Uh I wasn't, but it, it, it went down well. So there you go. But that was did that for about a year or so till it folded up. Lack of interest. I was the only one with a car and it was difficult getting everybody about. So Kenny Myers, you've heard of Kenny Myers. Well, he, he needs to be interviewed, definitely. But he used to take the phone calls because he was he was the man in charge, basically, of the engineering. So he took the phone calls. And I remember it frightened the life out of him one day because I went to the studio to do a programme. He says, Tony, you're not going to do one of those gay things again, are you? I said, well, if that's what they want. He said, I had a chap phone, our, phone up last week. He said, sounded very odd. He said, he wanted to know if this station was G-A-Y. He said, I didn't know what to say to him. So I had to slow it down a little bit on that. But we did We did other things. I used to do a flat share service. Uh, people used to phone in. We'd try and find them a flat somewhere in London. And I say, we were listed on, on Time Out magazine, which I thought was a feather in their cap. I think uh, for, for those people who, who don't know what Time Out magazine, either, either it was long gone before they... Uh, started reading magazines or uh, they weren't in London but Time Out was it was a London listings magazine and they were very pro pirate radio they did a fantastic feature on pirate radio around about 1978-1979 and it was a really really good feature very very positive about it and they did another one subsequently as well uh, where my station was listed along along with many others Um, and I think a lot of people felt that Time Out really did um helped the pirate radio world quite a lot. And I know there was, you know, that there were listings were regularly put in there. I also think that they were asked not to put them in there ultimately. Um, certainly when the laws changed in the mid eighties, they were asked not to put them in there. Um, but yeah, time, I think time out, you know, I've still got various editions of that where pirate stations are listed and talked about. Um, so 
one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and, and it's something I love to find out about the people who do this, because obviously we all have this interest in radio. Why, why did you do it? Why did you want to be involved in radio? What, what in your head makes you think, yeah, that's a really good idea? Well, from the age of about seven or eight, I used to go around jumble cells with my mum buying old radios and taking them apart and trying to find out how they worked. And it's always been very magical. And it was this magic that got into my blood, I suppose, and it's never gone. But I will say one thing about radio people, they're very odd. We are. We are very odd. We've all got some strange idiosyncrasies. But that's what makes us so funny and, and interesting, I think, with the fact that we're a bit odd. <laughs> I think the people who are not into radio can't understand the people who are into it. And the people who are into it can't understand why nobody else is into it other than the people they know. I agree with you. It's something that fascinates me. It's almost like it's magic. And I remember back in the day listening to Caroline, you know, on a winter's night when they're out in the North Sea on that rusty old ship. And there's a guy there sitting there playing, you know, Led Zeppelin records. uh, And I'm just sitting there listening to it. And it, it just had a bit of a... There was a ma- always a magical connection with radio. And one of the things people ask me about radio presenting, one of the things I always say uh, is, there's a, you know, you're, you're only talking to one person. I, I've heard a story about uh, Terry Wogan was in the lift once at Radio 2 and someone was chatting to him and they said, how many listeners do you think you've got, Terry? He went, I've only got one. And I think he had nearly 9 million at the time. <laughs> but um, that that's the thing. It's the personal nature of radio, which is one of the things that really attracts me. And I still listen to it for that reason. Um, it's one of the reasons I, I love local radio, uh, because it's a personal thing. Well, when you're, when you're listening to radio, the mind's eye goes into overdrive, doesn't it? You, you imagine, unlike when I first started on Jackie, I imagined Nick Catford sitting there in a big leather studio, Great, massive amount of turntables and cassette machines and oscilloscopes and transmitters. And I thought, this is wonderful. And when I met him and he showed me what it was all about, I thought, oh, it's like lifting up, uh, it's like looking behind the scenes of a, of a magician. You know, you actually find out how it's working. Sometimes it can be disappointing, but once you get your head around it, it's great. Well, it's a bit like pulling the curtain back in The Wizard of Oz, really, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Was that when Nick's uh, when the studio was in Nick's bedroom? It was. Yes. Yeah, I've seen I've seen pictures of that. Again, I, I don't know anybody who's who loves radio who doesn't like looking at a radio studio. I know that sounds ridiculous, but you know, you scroll through and look at radio studios. Oh, that's a nice one. That's not so good, is it? Absolutely. Yeah. How does he use that one? He must have a lot of arms to be able to use that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And, and, you know, I, I've, I've worked on various stations and, and I think you can tell a lot about how serious a station is by what sort of studio they have and how seriously they, they take that side of the, uh, of the station. And again, you know, as pirate radio, I know I started with, you know, a couple of old, um, music center turntables, you know, and a little realistic mixer and all that sort of thing. And then you slowly build up your, you know, you, you build a unit, proper unit, and and it and it you get a better microphone and stuff, and you it's almost like a self taught thing. But then you know a bloke who knows a bloke, and that's always another thing that happens with pirate radio. Um, there's very few people. I, I did speak to the people from RFM a couple of episodes ago, and they they said they knew nothing about it when they started. They didn't know anybody in the pirate radio scene. They weren't even listeners, and they were sitting in the pub one day and went, "Let's start a radio station." And they bought them a 
transmitter out of a magazine and sort of set it up. They were CBers, so they had a rough idea about RF and things. But that's a really rare thing. Nearly everybody else, in fact, almost everybody I speak to, knows someone who knows someone. Or they started like you, where they started to take things apart, or they went and bought an X-Forces thing from Lyle Street in London and started to, to, to move it so it would be on the broadcast band. And it's, and it's that electronic interest. And then, of course, they all become DJs in the end as well, because... Again, why wouldn't you? Anyway, let's get back to your radio career. Uh, so Sun Radio, it goes on for about a year after you're doing it. What sort of format was that? And, and how was it done? Was it was it tower blocks? Was it fields? Was it tapes? No, hills and fields. In fact, I think our most famous claim to fame was doing a broadcast from Ronnie Corbett's garden. Although we didn't know it was Ronnie Corbett's garden at the time. <laughs> When you say Ronnie Corbett's garden, was it quite a big garden? Yes, it was at the t- top of a hill, a place called Shirley Hills, which is near Croydon in Surrey. And uh, we thought, oh, this is good. It's nice and high. What a great takeoff, you know. So we stuck the dipole up the tree and away we go. And it was, it was from 7 till 11, I think it was. So we got a couple of hours, hour and a half into the broadcast and we saw this car come up the driveway. It's a Rolls Royce. Oh, that's nice. Anyway, there he was sitting on his cushion, driving his Rolls Royce. That was Ronnie Corbett. Obviously he never saw us. It was dark. We were hiding behind the trees. But uh, yeah, that was, that was quite funny. How, how close were you to the house? Um, probably a couple of hundred yards, I suppose. It was a big place, so, you know, uh, he had a big garden. But that was, that was really odd. That was, I don't know what he would have done. <laughs> he would have probably joined us. I don't know. But <laughs> he seems quite an amiable sort of guy. It, it, again, transmission sites never cease to amaze me. You know, the guys from Radio City, um, and, and I know you know of if you don't know Luke, and I know that Radio City went from the same site the entire time they were on the air and never got busted there. I think they did once by accident, but then they just carried on straight afterwards. Uh, and it was half a public park and half, so half someone's back garden, and it just sort of worked. Um, and, and transmission sites is always something that I, I, I find, again, quite interesting. Um, the other thing talking about transmission sites, and I put this on the Facebook group a little while ago, about a year ago, we were out walking in the Shropshire Hills, like we do occasionally. And I said, when I'm out walking, am I the only one who looks at some trees and goes, that'd make a good site? And the amount of people who came back to me and said, no, I still do it now. I do it all the time. Do it all the time. Um, but they also need one extra thing, which I probably shouldn't mention, but I'm going to anyway. They also need, also need a lamppost nearby too. It certainly saves you carrying those car batteries everywhere, doesn't it? I, I've spoke to plenty of people who, who've used tower blocks and, and uh, certainly didn't use um, car batteries in tower blocks. I know that much. Okay, what sort of format was, was Sun Radio? Uh, play what you like, basically. Uh, I was sort of um, Motown, poppy stuff. There was uh, Kenny Myers used to play his rock music. Um, um, and then there was um, uh, probably Ivor or, or, or Alan Ford. Uh, he'd play a mixture of everything. So, yeah, it was play what you like, basically. There was no fixed um, agenda. Okay. And um, and did you say it was, it was all taped? Or? All on tape, yes. Yes, that was on a double 302 in those days, yeah. Philips double three hundred two cassette machine. Yeah, I, I, I when I spoke to uh, spoke to Ivor um, about RFL, he said that they only ever did um, everything was taped and it was always done on reel to reels and they expanded the reels so they could get 
and, and slowed it right down so they could get um, a whole broadcast on one tape, basically. So Sun Radio closes down due to lack of interest. Where does Tony go after that? I got busted at home in 1976, so that would be about right, uh, by the post office. And that was for being silly indoors. I, I, I'd been QSAing for about four years on medium wave. And uh, I thought they weren't interested, but obviously they were, so they came around to see me. Um, the guy, Vic Frisby, you probably have heard of, he, he came round to see me and gave me two summonses and apologised. He was a nice old boy. Um, Eric Gotts, when they raided me, uh, I know this is not music radio, but you might find it interesting. Uh, when they raided me, he, he turned up with uh, another one of his, his um, I won't mention names, but another one of his operatives and a policeman. And I opened the door one Sunday afternoon. I was living at home with my parents, mother, actually, at the time. I said, oh, hello, Eric. What are you doing? He said, I've come to close you down. He went, I said, oh, dear. I said, do we need the policeman? He said, no. He said, I know him. He's all right. You can go. So he came in. <clears throat> I had quite a lot of power running. I had, uh, it's about 200 watts odd I was running from home. And uh, I was a Star Trek fanatic. Now, on the front of the panel, we had um, warp drive, phaser banks, um, and a DFA switch, which I won't say what it stood for, um, and, and something else. Anyway, he said, um, all this stuff, he said, did you build this? I said, no, I, I built that bit. My friend built that bit, uh, and, and the other bit I just cobbled together. Oh, right, okay. He said, well, can you switch it on? I said, no, I'm not going to switch it on. It's, it's illegal. I said, I'm not going to do that. He said, well, you better tell me how to do it. I said, well, you want... <laughs> The proton drive first, I said, let that warm up before you put the phaser banks on. I said, otherwise we'll have a big bang. <laughs> so <laughs> he did that. Now, the other guy, he was a technical man, a uh, guy with a beard. I shan't say his name. He was standing by the aerial, which went out by the window. Well, I thought this will be a grin. I had a 1K tone, which I put on uh, without them noticing. And he switched the PA on and his tone must have gone straight through this guy's ear hole because he was, he had an earpiece in and he, he went bonkers. Anyway, after all that, <clears throat> he said, I'm going to caution you now. I said, right. Okay. He said, as you know, it's a separate offense to install and it's a separate offense to operate. So he said, when did you first install this? I said, I have not, I, I never installed this. He said, well, when did you operate it then? I said, I've never operated it. He said, well, if you didn't operate it and, and you didn't install it, how did it get there? I said, well, I only lived here about six months. I said, and I thought it was part of the central heating because when I switched it on, the room got very warm. Now, I didn't think for one moment he would read this out in court, but he did. <laughs> the magistrate wasn't abused. <laughs> it amused me. Um... Anyway, the long and the short of it is they took all my gear away and, and did up, did me for £110, which was in 1976, I think. So in the meantime, uh, when, from the date I got busted, um, I applied for an amateur radio licence. I adjourned my court case twice, got my licence, went to Bre uh, Bromley Magistrates Court for the, for the fine and everything. And as we left... There was a WVA, a Woman's Voluntary Service, a canteen at Bromley Magistrates Court in those days. And I said to Rick, do you want a cup of tea? He said, what? I said, do you want a cup of tea? He said, what's the catch? I said, there's no catch. Oh, all right, he said, so. Him and his cohort had a cup of tea. I said, Eric, I said, 
what's the chance of me getting an amateur license? He said, oh, you won't get one of those for five years. I said, well, actually, I've got one. And I pulled it out of the pocket and he's, he nearly fell over. He said, where'd you get that from? I said, well, same place as everybody else gets it from, the college, you know. He said, well, I, I, I can revoke that straight away. I said, well, if you do, I'm going to be a damn nuisance to you. Oh, all right, he said. Well, we'll, look, we'll keep an eye on you. And if you behave yourself, we'll let you keep the license. That's fine. About a week later, the same guy brought the summonses round and was banging on my door again. I thought, oh, no. I said, hello, Victor. Have you come to do a station inspection and close me down? He said, no, 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 nothing like that. He said, I know you lost a lot of stuff when we raided you. He said, I've got a garage full of radio gear. If you need anything, come round and see me, which I thought was really nice of him. I know that when I spoke to Nick Catford, Victor Frisbee was one of the people he said was a genuinely good bloke. He did it because it was his job, but he didn't seem to hold any animosity against the pirates. He just felt that they were, they were it was a bit of a cat and mouse game to him, I think. And and I, I know that if what Nick tells me is true, which I have no doubt it was, that you know, they would ring him and say, Are you gonna be out this weekend? No, we're not out. Okay, fine, we'll be we'll be okay. And you know, I I, I he sounds like a, a very fair person, put it that way. And I think he had a genuine interest in radio as well, of all descriptions. And it's nice to hear those stories. Um, as I've said before on the podcast, if there is anybody out there who worked for the, worked for the authorities um, and would like to talk on this podcast, I would love to speak to people. Um, I will be very fair and very honest. You were doing a job. That's absolutely fine. It's not a trap. It's really genuinely for historical archive purposes and because people who listen to the podcast would love to hear from the other side and how they went about their job and what what, what and why they did they did what they did so what, what station did you move on to after you did sun radio i don't think i did actually i got into amateur radio and i got into motor racing and, and radio died a death for about 20 years i was dormant um, I moved up north to, um, well, up north, I moved to North London uh, and I was up there for some years and then I, everything went pear shaped. so I came back down and uh, I bumped into my old mate John, uh, down, we went down the pub, got chatting and uh, this, that and the other and then I got, I know this sounds might might sound big-headed, but I got headhunted by Andy Walker. He used to come down the pub on a Friday. He said, going to do a programme for us. I said, no, I don't do that anymore. It's 20 years, mate. I said, I, I, I wouldn't know what to do. So anyway, after about three or four visits, I said, OK. I said, but the programme's going to be rubbish. I said, uh, but I'll, I'll do it. I, told, I went up to his studio and RFL Shortwave. Um, They'd just finished doing FM and they'd started doing shortwave. So that was Andy Walker, um, Eric May, um, and somebody else I can't remember, and me. And uh, Andy said, do you want to do some programs? So I went up to his place and did some programs. And, and that was the start of that. It, that, was, um, that was probably the start of the best that RFL has ever been. Not because of me, but because of what, what we had of experience. Uh, Andy Walker, great, great organiser. I used to like putting aerials up. I like designing aerials. I like doing site work. I like installing transmitters, tuning them and everything. So everyone had their job. Eric May used to do phone calls. Uh, we had another guy doing letters. Uh, it, it, it really took off and it ran like clockwork. 
And, and what were the broadcast hours and what days and so on? Right. We were, if, we're f- normally a Friday afternoon till Monday morning on a timer. Um, that would be on, when we first started, that would be on one frequency, I think, six megacycles, six megahertz, sorry. Um, and then after that, we started uh, expanding our horizons. We were doing, we opened up, 5.8 megahertz, which wasn't wasn't really a pirate's broadcast band, but we opened it up. Um, we got uh, a BBC engineer who shall be nameless to build us a, a 500 watt shortwave rig, uh, which I got a shed for. And we four of us it took four of us to carry this transmitter into the woods, put the shed in the woods, put the rig in the woods, and uh, that really went. We, we we that was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, it was running running about 450 watts, pair of 813s. Um, after that, our Christmas broadcast got expanded. One Christmas, we were running two shortwave transmitters. Uh, no, sorry, three, tra- uh, three shortwave transmitters and uh, one medium wave. We did an international broadcast on 15 megs. Uh, we were doing 7 megs, uh, 3.9, and medium wave. It was It was... The letters, phone calls flooded in. We, we, we had listeners everywhere. Brilliant. And was there a global audience? Were there people from all over the world listening? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, absolutely. A lot, of, a lot from the Baltic states. They used to love the Beatles. Uh, couldn't get enough Beatles, the Baltic states. Um, but uh, we'd get things from Hawaii, Australia, New Zealand on the 15 mig service. That's the old BBC frequency we used to use, 15 something or other. The, the 3.9... That used to get out extremely well um, across the home counties into Essex uh, and, of course, Europe. Um, the 5.8 used to do more of Europe. A lot of the Scandinavians uh, uh, used to listen on 5.8. And on 15, because I say it was a totally, total global audience we had. We had, a <laughs> we, we had a mailing address in London, which I went and found because we, we needed a mailing address. And it was in King's Cross Road. And it was a hat shop. So I went into this hat shop. And I looked round and I couldn't see anybody. And then suddenly from the middle of the floor behind this counter, a head appeared. It sort of just rose above the counter. And there was this guy obviously wearing a wig. And it was non properly. And I, I looked at him and I thought, what have we got here? You know? <laughs> Anyway, we got chatting. He didn't like the authorities. I spun him a yarn about we recorded, uh, uh, we, we recorded programs and we sent them islands and they were broadcast from there so we weren't breaking the law. And he said, I don't care if you are breaking the law. He said, I don't like the authorities. I don't like the government. I don't like the police. And I thought we're going to get on really well together. But up, up there once a month and uh, collecting our posts and we did have bundles of posts. But it never ceased to amaze me when I went there. He used to appear for a bit. And this, I think it used to abuse him, the fact that I laughed or sniggered when I saw his wig on sideways. And, and yeah, I think he did it all the more. It really made me laugh. <laughs> so uh, what sort of format were you doing uh, on RFL on shortwave? And did you say you were on medium wave as well at times? Oh, yes, a medium wave. Yes, that, was, that was on 819, the old Caroline frequency. Uh, that was about 150 watts. That got out extremely well. 
I'll tell you about that. Well, I want to tell you about it now. Um, the medium wave rig was built again by a BBC engineer, 4807, 150 watts, plate modulated, extremely good quality. Um, and that uh, we had reports from Cambridge uh, from a guy called Chris Cortez, who said that the, uh, the mod and the signal was absolutely excellent, better than local IBA. So uh, I was pleased with that. Um, we, we did a lot of transmissions from there. Towards the end of the uh, transmissions, we, we just took it for granted that we weren't going to get raided. Uh, everything was plain sailing. And I used to go to the, the other sites, which had the, the big rig. I'd go down there and I'd sit down there for half an hour while waiting for the rig to warm up. And then I'd sit there tuning it up, getting the last microamp up the aerial. I, I loved it. You know, I was in love with that transmitter, I think, because he <laughs> used to sit there and glow at me. It was lovely. <laughs> um, but we had a couple of occasions when we had a radio terrorist turn up. Uh, the first time we noticed it, or I noticed this, was uh, when we had the roof of the shed ripped off. And that was left open to the uh, elements and the pie tank and one of the tuning gangs have been damaged. So I had to repair that, got it back on the air again. And then we noticed things like wires being cut and uh, things being moved. Nothing to put us off completely, but just to cause annoyance. We think it was one of our own. I can't say anyone that, but one particular person thought it was really silly to run all that power and that we were going to get raided. And as I explained to him, it doesn't matter if you run one watt or a thousand watts, you're still breaking the same law. And if they want to nick you, they will do. And, and, and the power you're running is not mentioned in court. It just says illegal transmissions. But he had this thing where he wanted to keep turning the power down. In fact, on the medium wave rig, uh, one particular instance I remember when uh, I wasn't the last to leave, he was. And we had a guy called Bob the Sneak who was, used to be Earth Radio, um, and he would monitor the signal for me as we tuned up and everything. And it would be, I don't know, 20 over nine when I left. And it, on this particular occasion, I wasn't the last to leave, so I tuned the transmitter up. <clears throat> and then he phoned me up. He said, are you fiddling about again? I said, no, I'm not even in the... He said, it's gone down by 10 dB. He said, it's been turned down. So that's how we worked out who it was who was to, it's a man who turns things down, he was known as. But I'm not going to mention any names. So yeah. that, that caused a lot of trouble. So were you running, was the audio again on tape or were you doing live stuff linked or how was the audio? We were doing stuff on tape. Um, we had a double cassette machine, which uh, were like gold dust in those days, a good quality double cassette machine. Uh, although towards the end, uh, Kenny Myers, the brain box, said, why don't you take this big tower thing into the woods with you? He said, I've got all the programs on there. Swish it on. He said, it will just keep going. Well, I said, well, that it? He said, yeah, just take a monitor in with you. Set it all up and uh, it, it, it will keep going. And we did this one Christmas and I must admit, he was banged to rights when he said the, uh, a certain program would come on. It came on. Uh, when that one was supposed to go off, it went off. It was, it was, it was the... Uh, the advent of digital technology for us uh, in, in the pirate radio. You know, it was brilliant. He was a clever man, very clever man. Digital audio with analogue transmissions. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And you were running a number of different transmitters. So how were you coordinating the audio between the... No, we didn't. We ran different programmes. 
When I say different programs, they were the same programs, but we'd get to one site and put one little tape in. And it didn't really matter too much because on shortwave, it all gets squirted in different different directions at different times. So it didn't really matter. Um, and the medium wave one, we only had one medium wave service anyway. So that that was that. And how long were you involved with RFL on shortwave then? Uh, RFL shortwave and medium wave. Medium wave was my baby. I like medium wave. Um, up until the end, until imploded, the, 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 the station imploded. We had lots of, because we were so successful, and I keep on banging on about this, because we were so successful, suddenly everybody wanted to be a part of it. When we started, we couldn't find people to help us for love nor money, but when it got successful and there were certain, shall we say, Elements that should never have been allowed to come into the into the station. Ego trippers. Um, I want to do this. That's my bit. Oh yeah, I did that. And, and it upset the running of the whole station. And unfortunately, there was a divide. Some people took some people's sides. Other people took other people's sides. Me and Mister Walker decided this that we were going to knock it on the head. I would pay everybody up who'd put money in to buy the transmitters, which I did. I kept the transmitters and I started swinging Radio England with my mate, with my mate Dave Doubledex. And what, uh, and what year was this then? What, what, where are we now? Uh, that would be 2001, 2002. That went on for about, there was only the two of us, so it was a bit of a struggle. Uh, we did that for about 18 months before we just, you know, uh, we, we had a couple of raids. There was another station, which I've forgotten to mention. I said, you know, um, there was a station uh, while we were on Sun, while Sun Radio was still going, uh, that we all joined in at the weekend, at Bank Holiday Weekends, called Trans London Radio. Now, that was just an excuse for a drunken jolly, really. All the, all the South East Station staff, we'd all, we'd all get together, find a location, normally a house, always done live. They were somebody's house. And uh, we did Trans London Radio and it was fabulous. <laughs> it was it was so much fun. Uh, live broadcasts, you can't beat them. There always seems to be these little occasional bank holiday stations. I did one called Radio Free Redbridge from my bedroom when my parents were away one weekend. I re also remember Telstar One. They always used to do uh, their live broadcasts. It was very occasional. You know, it was always very exciting if Telstar One were, were, were coming on. Uh, a station called Radio Alpha, I remember, always used to do bank holidays as well. And obviously, uh, Trans London Radio were another one of those stations. And I always find that quite interesting that it doesn't matter what you do, you can't really keep away from it. Um, you know, even though you're you're all from different stations, you still want to do something. That's right, because at the end of the day, we all went down the pub together. We were all mates. So why not do a, a, a jolly? You know, it might have been from different stations, but we're all one thing. We loved pirate radio. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's the one thing that connects everybody. And like I say, it, it does seem to be birds of a feather, birds of a feather flock together in these situations. Uh, you know, once, you know, I know a bloke who knows a bloke and then someone else gets involved. And then this guy, you know, that's why I ended up on a number of stations myself, uh, because I just knew people and they said, Oh, do you want to come and do a program? A bit like it happened to you as well. So after swinging Radio England, was that the end of your pirate days? Active pirate days, perhaps, yes, but we're still plotting and planning, trying to put another station on, but it's lack of staff. I had one, I had one location lined up um, about six months ago. Got the aerial up with the help of Alan Ford and, uh, and, and uh, John Dawson, you may know of. Um, 
John Dawson, right? Okay, well, we went up there to put this aerial up, put the aerial up, got... I made this brilliant box up with fans, thermostatically controlled fans, sockets and everything, keep transmitter cool. And after about a month, I went back up there. I, I changed it to a tree, but the tree people had been up there and they'd, they'd chopped all the trees down and taken my box. And I had probably, what, a lifetimes of odds and ends in that box, which helped me on site. And I was really, really upset about that. I, I wasn't happy at all. Um, yeah. That, I'm talking of um, Dave Doubledecks on, on RFL. It started off that I did programs on my own. A double decks would do programs on his own. And then he'd wander into the, he started to wander into the studio with different voices. And we'd have, um, who would we have? Let me see. Michael Kane would come in to see me, the voice of. Um, there'd be the guy who did Sky at Night, Patrick Moore, would come in to see me. Uh, there would be the, the no arm newsboy, who was just a head. Uh, the dyke on a bike who'd come in and see me and give me some information. And all these people would come wandering in. And it became so popular that, uh, well, we kept it as a regular item. And we had a lot of lot of feedback from that. A lot of people enjoyed that. Uh, and uh, after that, he started doing programs of his own. Um, in particular, one of his funniest was a certain Jimmy fellow. So I can't say his surname. But uh, that's before he died. Uh, we take, we're very satirical. We were very satirical. We, um, uh, we took the mickey out of a lot of people, like Chinese satellites landing on Patrick Moore's head, stuff like this. It, 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 was, it was a big wind-up. You used to upset some people, believe it or not, but it amused us. <laughs> when, I, when I first started going to these meetups at the pub, there was a pub in, in Catford called the um, Railway Tavern, and you'd have a job to get in the pub because it was so full of pirates. It was absolutely ram jam packed full of pirates. And and these, you know, everybody sort of knew each other or knew of each other. Uh, and, and they was all doing their different stuff. But we all had the same aim in mind, pirate radio. It was it was really good, an eye opener. But nowadays, if we get eight or nine people turn up at the pub, we're doing okay. You know, but a lot of them have died, of course, so you know, passed away. Well, th this is what one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast was was that very thing you've just said, is that the generation now is, I mean, I'm 60 next year. Um, you know, we're all about the same age or a little bit older than that or a little bit younger, but we have lost people already. You know, we've lost Brian Horn from Jackie. We've lost Brian Anthony, Bob Tomalski. We've lost all these people who are really, really important. He was a good good. Good friend to us, Bob Tomowski was a good friend. He used to come down the pub and uh, never forgot his roots. Even though he was Inspector Gadget, he never forgot us. One of the reasons I do this is because I want to try and document this stuff. You know, my, my, my university degree is in history. I'm very interested in history and radio history and pirate radio history, which is why I run the Facebook group and why I do these podcasts, because hopefully there'll be people who are interested in what we did and 100 years' time I will be listening to these and going, I can't believe they did that. <laughs> what strange people. Why would you want to go out of field and get absolutely soaking wet to do this? It's madness. <laughs> and luckily, people like yourselves, sorry, people like yourself and plenty of other people, I'm really happy to talk about that time because I think people are quite proud of what they did. I am. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm proud of all the people that I met, uh, lifelong friends, damn good people, 
Uh, and uh, they're the sort of people you want by your side if ever you was in trouble. And a really, really good bunch. And I'm not sure that we'd have the radio landscape that we have now, or we certainly had 10 years ago, maybe when it was slightly more diverse, uh, without the pirate stations. And many pirate stations have become, have become legal in the same way that, you know, in Shropshire here, we have Sunshine Radio still broadcasting on Medium Wave. They were a pirate station for years. I'll, I'll tell you one quick story before, I, before we go. Um, the night before I was, I was due to go on to Big L, um, that's Ray Anderson's Big L, not the original one. I'm not that old, unfortunately. Um, uh, I, we were in the pub and I bumped into some new age mods and they saw my Radio London T-shirt on and they said, wasn't that a station in the 60s? I said, yeah, that's right. I said, can you tell us any more about it? Anyway, I was up till nearly four o'clock because they kept on buying me drinks at this bar and they couldn't get enough information about what it was like in those days, what Radio London stood for, uh, what sort of clubs we went to, how we, how we got on with each other, what we did. And uh, it, it, was, it was nice to be able to tell them, you know, these youngsters, what it was like in the 60s. It was really good. Didn't do me any good the next day when I had to do a programme. It was dreadful. But <laughs> probably the worst programme, probably the worst programme ever done uh, and probably... One of my highlights, because I always thought Radio London was the bee's knees. And uh, thanks to Paul Graham and, and Ray Anderson, I, they gave me a chance to do a programme on, on the Big L on the pier, which was, um, which was an accomplishment for me, but uh, say the programme was rubbish. But these mods were really interesting. Right then, well, Tony, it's been lovely talking to you. I've really enjoyed this. Um... Just one other thing I'd like to say, I'd like to thank everybody I've met throughout the years in all different types of pirate radio, whether it be QSOing, music, FM, shortwave, medium wave, they're all a good bunch. And I thank them for their, for their uh, friendship. Tony, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. And uh, maybe we'll speak to you again one day. Thanks very much. I hope so. And thank you, Mark, for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this Pirates of the Airwaves podcast. If you want to comment or just get in touch with us, then please email us at piratepod7080 at gmail.com. Why not subscribe, follow, like and review the podcast? And don't forget to tell your friends about us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another interview with one of the Pirates of the Airways. Until then, stay safe. Radio Nova, broadcasting on 14.04 kilohertz of the medium wave band, 212 meters. Unfortunately, we've had to suspend your regular broadcasting. This is due to the post office requiring to test and inspect our equipment. We'll return you to normal broadcasting just as soon as we can. This is a 1386 audio production. <laughs>